if any group of people in this country or any government gave in to violence and intimidation of the kind which has disfigured our screens, there'd be no future for democracy or for any other union or any moderate trade unionist in this country. Is this what you meant? to give in to that. Is this what you meant by the phrase, the enemy within? The violence and intimidation we have seen should never have happened. It is the work of extremists. It is the enemy within. You are listening to Grim Up North, a podcast about the North, from the North. Welcome to Grim Up North, a podcast about the North, from the North. I'm Matt Carr. And I'm Adrian Scott. And wow, what an episode we're going to have today. Absolutely, because today we're going to be discussing one of the key events in the history of the North, and in fact in the history of the country, the 1984-85 miners' strike. We're going to focus our attention on a very specific episode in the strike, the so-called Battle of Orgreave that took place on June the 18th, 1984. But before we do that, let's have a closer look at this concept of the defeated North. What exactly are we talking about here, Adrian? Well, and we put a question mark. We have. Defeated North, question mark. Um, I, I think we're talking about modern history, but it's got roots right back. Um, and we're going we're gonna to talk about some of those roots. But it, it, it's about the way the industrialised North was ground into the dust in some ways. It's true. We're talking about defeat with a question mark but in order to be for that question even to be asked you have to have fought in the first place don't you well exactly and the north has fought a lot um there's been a whole there's a long (laughs) tradition of the north um rebelling against central authority um as uh, central authority emanating from the south and based in london i mean there's so many episodes um a sport for choice really i mean we can talk about the harrying of the north uh, Brutal yes. episode that took place. Harrying in, is a s- small word. Small word for what was for done. Brutality. Absolutely. It took place in 1069 when yeah. Northumbrian noblemen allied themselves with the Danes and rebelled against William the Conqueror. So who was the traitor there, eh? Yeah. Allying with the Danes. But then who was William the Conqueror? Well, that's where we got Beowulf from. So. Anyway, William the Conqueror <laughs> hammered the North for that. Yeah, um, according to the 12th century chronicler Orderic, the Normans carried out what was a scorched earth campaign in which they destroyed every crop, every herd of animals, every orchard they could Good find. Grief. So that the whole region north of the Humber might be stripped of all means of sustenance. According to Orderick, probably an exaggerated figure, a hundred thousand people died. Goodness me. Most historians don't think those figures are reliable, but they do agree that mass starvation did take place across the north and it was a calamitous episode. <laughs> it was a defeat then. Totally, totally. Then we can move on to the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536. This was a rebellion partly from noblemen and partly from commoners rebelling against Henry VIII and the suppression of the monasteries. So it had a strong Catholic component. It it did. It was defeated. Again. Um, (laughs) This was followed by the Northern Rebellion of 1569 to 70, which also had a Catholic component. This was a rebellion against uh, Queen of... 
Queen Elizabeth I in support of Mary, Queen of Scots. Good old Mary that was at Sheffield for a while. And this was viciously suppressed after the defeat, defeat again. Yeah, the, the commanding officer, Elizabeth's commanding officer, George Bowes, was ordered to invade, resist, subdue, kill, and put to execution by of death by all ways and means. Men were selected at random to be hanged. 300 rebels sake. out of 794. This is brutality on steroids. In, totally. In, in Durham, 200 or 300 hanged at Gallows Hill in Ripon. I got, this is a quote from the Earl of Sussex who wrote to Sir George Bowles. He said, I have set the numbers to be executed in every town, under the name of every town, as I did in your other book, which draweth near to 200, wherein you may use your discretion in taking more or less in every town, as you shall see just cause. Good God. So people were hanged all over the Yorkshire Dales for that. Yorkshire was the centre. I think we must rebellion. have rebellion in our DNA. Yeah, yeah. That you, kind of treatment just leaves a scar. Totally. And it's not only armed rebellion. Moving, right. more, moving forward, okay. um, one of the most brutal battles, it's not really, it wasn't really a battle, it was a no. slaughter, was carried out on August the 16th, 1819. When so we're getting nearer. 60,000 to 100,000 Lancashire cotton workers gathered in St. Peter's Field Fields. in Manchester. They were there to hear Henry Orator Hunt, and the meeting was part of a campaign. Is he called Orator? His, his name was, he was known as Henry Orator Hunt. Great, yeah. Um, <laughs> because of his oratory. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that meeting was part of a campaign for the franchise to be extended to working men and women. Yeah. And the armed yeah. cavalry, the Manchester Yeomanry, was sent into the crowd by watching magistrates to arrest Hunt. They used their swords to cut their way through the crowd, and the writer oh, and activist God. Samuel Bamford was one of the leaders of that march to St. Peter's Square, and this is what he saw after ten minutes of mayhem. Oh, well, let's hear him. In ten minutes from the commencement of the havoc, the field was an open and almost deserted space. The sun looked down through a sultry and motionless air. The curtains and blinds of the windows within view were all closed. A gentleman or two might occasionally be seen looking out from one of the new houses before mentioned, near the door of which a group of special constables were collected and apparently in conversation. Others were assisting the wounded or carrying off the dead. The hustlings remained, with a few broken and hewed flagstaves erect and a torn and gashed banner or two dropping, whilst over the whole field were strewed caps, bonnets, hats, shawls and shoes and other parts of male and female dress, trampled, torn and bloody. The yeomanry had dismounted. Some were easing their horses' girths, others adjusting their accoutrements and some were wiping their sabres. Several mounds of human beings still remained where they had fallen crushed down and smothered. Some of these still groaning, others with staring eyes were gasping for breath, and others would never breathe more. So at the end of that day, wow. between 10 and 20 people were killed, men, women and children, 600 injured, Good many brief. of them badly injured. So it was an absolute bloody suppression of an unarmed protest. It wasn't protest. really a battle, was it? Not really. And calling no. it Peterloo is a kind of sarcastic reference to Waterloo. Yeah. It was like, um, oh, I see. okay, you heroic soldiers <laughs> fought, defeated the French at Waterloo, but what do you do here in Manchester? You yeah, slaughter, slaughter a load of unarmed protesters. Exactly yeah. that. Yeah. So, in a way, like this was the episode of the early period of industrialisation when, when the working class was seeking representation. Yeah. It's like the beginning. It's the first bookend and then the end is where we're coming to. The end is where we're coming from. Yeah. The end is where we're coming to, to yeah. in the miners' strike, otherwise yeah. known as the Great Strike for Jobs and Communities, 
which took place 145 years later. This wasn't a strike about representation. It was a strike to defend jobs and communities. And it wasn't, we, we talk about it as a strike of the North because the North was at the centre of it. Yeah. But it wasn't but only the North. It was way beyond the North. Wales, Wales Kent, Scotland. Scotland. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, this was an absolutely epic event. I mean, um, yes. the strike began on the 6th of March, 1984, when miners <laughs> walked out from Cortonwood Colliery. In spring. In spring, in South Yorkshire, <laughs> in protest at, at the announcement of the pit's closure yeah. by the National Coal Board. Yeah. So Cortonwood was one of 20 pits at the end the National Coal Board intended to close in a pre-planned operation yeah. organised by the Thatcher government. The groundwork had already been laid, coal had already coal been, stockpiled. been stockpiled. Yep. In, in huge amounts. The, the miners have been working. They've been encouraged to do overtime. Yep. It was, and, to, and to start a strike in spring seems mad to me. But Absolutely. Well, in a way... It just broke that's out. That's when it just broke out. And it was carried... People say that, oh, Scargill picked this strike in order to um, overturn the government. No doubt Scargill would have liked to have done that, but he didn't begin that strike. No. He was actually carried on by the momentum of area after area. And it was like place. a fire. It was. It, it sparked at Corton Wood and then it moved and then it moved and then it moved. Yeah. It was. And the other I thing, remember. Yeah. The other thing in terms of the um, preparation, crucially in terms of what we're going to be talking about later, is yes. the deployment of the National Police. Um, because National um, Police. this had been planned in advance Yes. Uh, in conjunction with laws against secondary picketing, that the police would be mobilised like an army. Yes. Like the, an army of occupation. So the planning wasn't so much the NUM, the National Union of Miners, it was the government that had done the planning. No, if anything, you could say the NUM underplanned, or yeah. at least they didn't know what was happening. And yes. some, in fact, some, some NUM officials have said that they were better organised than us. Yeah. Um, because they didn't know what was happening. the end. Nevertheless, this lasted nearly a year, 26 million person days of work lost. 11,291 arrests, just over 8,000 charged, six deaths. Miners lost their homes, they so fell into more debt. They made enormous sacrifices enormous. during that year. And the cost of the policing operation to suppress them estimated 200 million at the time. So the government won, and it so did it was, so. <laughs> it was a defeat. There's it, no way around it, is there? There's but, no way around the fact that it was a defeat. But we're going to look at what yeah. that really means. And it was done by... The government won by doing things that had never been done before. Yeah, they turned large definitely. parts of the North and the Midlands into what was a police state. I remember. I, do you? What do you remember? Yeah, well, I, I was young. I was in my 20s. I was living in Maltby, which was one of the pits. Uh, and we would take young people to give them a bit of a break to the coast in a minivan. And I remember one particular journey, we were stopped about 14 times on the way to Skegness and back because they thought we were flying pickets. And I, even in my 20s, I wasn't particularly politically aware, but I was thinking, well, this is like being in Latin America. Scargill um, says that, actually. He said yeah. that at various points. I, I, I remember something similar when we, um, me and my friends, we organised a collection for the miners around Christmas time right. in 1984. Right. And we tried to bring it in a van. In fact, that's another thing about the strike. It was so widely supported. I mean, well, the trade unions didn't take action, but there was lots of grassroots support. Huge amount of grassroots. So we had no problem. We filled a van. We, we yeah. thought we'd c collect some things from a mining village. We made contact with that village. It was in Nottingham. Yeah. It was a striking village, unusual yeah. in Nottingham. Yeah, yeah. And so, we'll come um, to that. But within days, we had the whole bottom half of the house filled. 
So we brought this stuff up, and you couldn't get into Nottinghamshire, of course. You had to sneak in. <laughs> into, it was in your own country, but you had to sneak into it to avoid the police lines. And then we, it was like coming to a place under siege, seeing that Exactly. Village. Never seen anything like it in this country I'd, I'd before never, or since. My, 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 one of my friends, his, his family were on strike, and they used tea bags four times. There was a there was a, a soup kitchen in Maltby that everyone came to for the for a one meal in the day that they could be guaranteed. I, I remember thinking, this is unbelievable. I, I think when you're in the middle of something, you don't realise how awful it is. It's only when we've been doing the research for this uh-huh. that I've realised, good grief, this was this was was like a war. It was. It was, and. A lot of that history has been completely forgotten. Uh, Although, some of it has come back recently. Well, yeah. yeah as a result of the BBC drama Sherwood. What a brilliant... I mean, just as a drama, it was fantastic. But but its roots, the writer's roots into the history of the minor strike, into the, into the problem with the Nottinghamshire coalfield that didn't come out on strike. Yeah. Um, and the... the Union of Democratic Mine Workers that formed um, the whole thing, that awful word scab, uh, it's still uh, used about that area because they they refused to come out on strike. Yeah, it's and telling, the drama tells the story of it that. It does. It's a story that wasn't um, widely known. I mean, because the media narrative at that time, the government narrative was the Nottinghamshire... Um, Miners who are not striking yes. are heroes. Yeah, noble, bravely, That's bravely right. keeping the fighting for democracy, yes. and we're going to support. It was them. all if, couched in that narrative. Of well, democracy. I mean, if they hadn't done it, it's quite likely that that strike would have been won. I mean, that was a crucial thing as well, wasn't I, it? Twenty-seven, twenty-eight thousand right. miners who didn't go I on strike. I think you're right, and I think that quote that you, you, our listeners will have heard at the beginning from the notorious Mrs. Thatcher, um, talking about the enemy within. Um, it was such a divisive strike. Absolutely, and uh, Sherwood really captures that. And um, it kind of the, the writer knew those villages. He grew yes. up, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, in the heart of those villages, and he knew them. And so he, um, one of the most powerful pieces for me in that series was uh-huh. the um, monologue. Oh which God! This is the monologue we're going to listen to right yes. now, when Lindsay yes. Duncan talks about why all this was done. Exactly. My future Tory Secretary of State. They wanted that strike. They wanted to change the political landscape of this country away from collectivism towards deregulated market forces. And reasonable people can agree or disagree with that shift. The point is, in order to achieve it, they needed a war. They needed to, and I quote, provoke a strike in nationalised industries. And they picked coal. And they won. And this country changed forever. And they picked coal and they won. And this country changed forever. That's just dynamite. It's dynamite. Not just that they picked coal, they picked the National Union of Mine Workers because that was the most powerful and most militant union. And in order to achieve what Lindsay Duncan describes, they had to break that union. Yeah, and break a way of life and break places that people lived. People were prosperous, people were happy. And it's the brutality of that brilliant piece of writing. What's the writer's name? James James Graham. Graham. It's just, 
it just takes my breath away how succinct a summary that is. I agree. And also, I think the crucial thing is when she says they wanted to yeah. change. Because the thing is, it didn't have to be done like this. No. Even if you, even if you think that coal was an industry that had to end. Well, yeah. You could have done it in a and, and economically. But you needn't have... It, 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 the sort of warfare that yep. she describes in order to achieve an end. That's what, what, you know, if we're talking about the defeated North question mark, if there is a defeat, that's it. Absolutely. I mean, Thatcher said more than one occasion that part of her aim was to destroy the post-war welfare settlement. Yeah. And that was part of doing that. <laughs> Certainly was. And also you think, you know, you've got miners who powered the country yes. for more than 200 years during two world wars that couldn't have been won without them. Without them. 150,000 miners died between the, the late... Uh, 18th century and right. the time the pits finally closed Shh. and they get called the enemy within uh, that is what's so despicable the enemy within as opposed to the Argentinian enemy without yeah. I mean it's a disgrace it's, it's a horrible thing it, it was a disgrace that, that such language should have been used and it's still in the consciousness of people today I yeah. think and you know like in Germany now Germany they're planning to phase out coal yes so they're having discussions they've created a commission which includes representatives of all the pit oh. villages in the areas that are likely to be affected and they're having discussions about how they can do this that's what none of this happened, happened. This was, that's what should have happened this was basically a, a political not yes. an economic um yes. battle that was yes. picked by the government yes in part as revenge as well because of what happened to heath yeah uh, in 1974 yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah i mean so this is very important stuff in it the is. way we think about the history of our country and it's only just beginning to come back yeah it is so we spoke to Harry Patterson, um, author of Look Back in Anger, which is a history of the Nottinghamshire <laughs> yeah. stri strike. And we asked him about Sherwood and policing and we other did. related matters. Yeah, and this is what he says. You call the book Look Back in Anger, and the anger is personal, isn't it? It's not just um, because basically it's personal that. and it's connected with your family experience, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Matt, absolutely. I mean, I think for all of us, not just in Nottingham, but... It, Sheffield particularly, you know, one of the strongholds during the strike. But I think the anger um, is of a different, I wouldn't necessarily say it's more or less, but it's of a different order, I feel, in Nottinghamshire, where only a tiny minority um, of, of, of the NUM went on strike. And the privations and the abuse and the injustices that they suffered um, did engender a completely different sort of vibe that you know to that which existed in any other coal field, um, and that anger is still latent. It's still felt here. It's one of the things, really. It's one of the one of the main reasons why I objected so strongly to the conclusion of Sherwood, where there's this scene in the miners' welfare of you know love and peace and reconciliation, and it isn't tribalism. It isn't you know spite or bloody mindedness or doggedness that makes people like me and striking miners reject the idea that we can all get around the campfire and sing Kumbaya because it's all in the past. It's not about that. It's about the fact that in Nottinghamshire, the people that broke the strike are completely unrepentant. You know, yeah. it's not for me to speak on behalf of the NUM, but I do know many of my friends that's, that were on strike for the full year, I know a few of them would definitely be sympathetic if some of the scouts had actually said, you know what? Um, I was completely wrong. We can see everything that's transpired since then was exactly as you said, and I regret doing that. You know, until there's that, until there's a realisation, until the lessons are learned, how can there be any, you know, rapprochement which means anything? You know, because if the lessons aren't learned, 
and mistakes aren't acknowledged, then we're ripe for doing exactly the same thing all over again. Yeah. Most excellently, I thought, portrayed in the scene where the NUM lawyer is at Newstead Abbey, and she's explaining how the whole thing rolled yeah. out. I thought that was fantastic. It was brilliant. I mean, yeah. part of me looked at my own book and Seamus Milne's um, The Enemy Within, and I thought, you know, between the two of us, because Seamus has been a great friend to me and he helped tremendously um, during the writing of the book, but you put those two books together and that one that one monologue, pretty much, that's it. The essence of everything you need to know about where we came from, where we are now, and how we got from there to here was in that monologue. It was just a superb piece of Absolutely. writing. I think the minor strike was, was, was crucial in the sense that uh, well, it was crucial for for many things. It, it changed the nature of British society forever in many, many areas. But police in particular is, is of incredible significance because up until that point, <coughs> excuse me, uh, industrial disputes, um, we're not policed in any real sense. Mm-hmm. You would occasionally get police turning up if there was if there was overt criminality that was, you know, as a result of or linked to what was happening around. But the idea of politically policing an industrial dispute was completely alien. I mean, policing was a, was a turning point anyway. It started with, with the creation of a de facto national police force. Um, I mentioned in the book at the time, I think it's still the case, there were 43 separate constabularies in the UK. Each one's got its own jurisdiction. Uh, and although each is obviously enforcing the law as it applies from the legislature at a state level, Nevertheless, you know, each each is a constabulary on its own. <clears throat> but at Scotland Yard, where they put the National Resource Centre together and coordinated all 43 constabularies into a de facto national force, that was incredibly significant. And in Nottingham, where you will often find this around the coalfields, people draw a sharp distinction between their own homegrown police force, for lack of a better word, and the Met. The Met was much more politicised than any other force in the country at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were ardent Thatcherite disciples. Um, her largesse was incredible. You know, people were paying off mortgages 15, 20 years earlier, just on the back of the overtime. Uh, they were buying new caravans, holiday homes. You know, this this was an ideologically and materially committed police force. But that, of course, has spread <coughs> throughout. And then we arrive at Augury. And people talk to me about Orgreave and they say things like, well, you know, it was all spontaneous. It just got out of hand. No, no, it wasn't. It was it was planned. And again, this is not in the realms of spec- speculation or conjecture. No. David Hart, Thatcher's personal emissary, you know, um, in the coalfields, uh, tasked specifically with destabilising the miners' struggle, has boasted afterwards. He's on record and he's quoted in my book. His actual words were, the fact is that Orgreave was a setup. It was a setup by us, and it worked brilliantly. I mean, what more proof do people need? Um, and I think once you get to the stage where things like Orgreave can, can not just be allowed to happen, mm. but be allowed to happen with no repercussions still to this day, then, you know, we, we've taken a significant move from the society that we may have thought we lived in to one that we absolutely wouldn't want to live in in our worst nightmares. So Orgreave, Orgreave is in your territory, isn't it, Adrian? Yeah, it is. It is. Where is it, Orgreave? It's just off the parkway. As you come into Sheffield off the M1, uh, it's to your left. Um, and, I mean, there's nothing there now. But at that time, it was a coking plant for British Steel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was lorries coming in w- with 
coal and then going out with coke. Taking it to Scunthorpe to the yes, Scunthorpe Steelworks, right. wasn't it? That's right. And so, they had been so picketing for a few weeks, hadn't they, before yes, the they major had. confrontation. Yes, they had. And that yes. was some quite a confrontation, wasn't it? Something else. It was something else. I mean, at least 5,000 miners went. I mean, that's a lot of people. I think Scargill would have liked more, and he would have liked other trade unions to come. And from what people have said, they were just suddenly allowed to turn up there. Yeah. Having been stopped so often at motorway uh, um, exits and things like that, suddenly it was like, oh, go through, lads. Because there was a field there, wasn't there, where yes. people could be herded into. And this is another thing, about 5,000 miners, but there were at least the same a number of police, possibly more, more probably quite more. possibly more. Police had 24 dog handlers, 42 mounted police. Yeah, cavalry. And um, at the end of that day, 51 pickets and 72 police were injured, and yeah. 93 miners were, were arrested. arrested. So... This was, we call this a battle. But, <laughs> like this we is call how, Peter Lua battle. Like we call Peter Lua battle. And this is, this is in fact how the news presented it at the time, didn't they? As a battle, in which the police were essentially on the defensive. Uh, yeah, yeah. They twisted it all round. And as, in, as in this clip. Yeah, let's hear it. Arthur Scargill called for a mass picket of Orgreave. Today he got one. Several thousand miners turned up and attempt once and for all to halt British Steel's Coke convoys. Mr Scargill himself was there trying to direct operations with a loud hailer. But so too were the police in numbers rarely seen even in this dispute. The pickets were penned in away from the front entrance but when the first convoy was spotted at around nine o'clock the trouble began. The pickets surged and running fights broke out. Missiles were thrown and fencing ripped up. But when the smoke bombs went off, the reinforcements and the riot shields moved in. And all the while, the lorries, 35 of them, swept in procession into the plant. The injuries were to both pickets and police, the victims taken away to waiting ambulances. This afternoon, another convoy and more clashes as police drove back pickets, and again running battles between miners and mounted police. There were more injuries, ambulance men wore special headgear as they led casualties away from the scene. There are clearly two conflicting views of who was to blame for the trouble. We've had riot shields, we've had riot gear, we've had police on horseback charging into our people, we've had people hit by truncheons, we've had people kicked onto the ground by the police, and the intimidation and the brutality that's been displayed are something reminiscent of a Latin American police state. But tonight, police put on display some of the weapons they say were used against them and their horses. There's talk about riot shields and riot helmets. That simply is protection for the officers who've got to stand there. If the officers were unable to stand there, the gates to the plant would be closed. And simply, in order to maintain that position, we had to bring out shields and we had to don protective helmets. So what do you think of that, Adrian? I mean, it's um, to what we've heard and, and what we'll come on to, it's like they turned it upside down. And the, the innocent people here were the police and the miners were the provocateurs and 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 that policeman at the end saying oh well you know we we had to we had to do this we had we had to wear armor what did they need cavalry 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the whole thing got turned around by the BBC, which is shocking to me. It did. They literally turned it around because yeah. they made out that the missiles that were thrown at the police were thrown first, when in fact the order of the day was the police charge first in response to a picket push. And that's been proved now. Proven over and over again. Yes. And almost everybody, you read anything from anybody who went to Augury that day, they all say, talk about the surprise they felt. They were almost invited exactly. in. They and talk we're about hear police that. lines opening and uh, to allow them in, and then just being, char- not only charged, but savagely Savage. around the head. Yes. It's lucky people weren't killed that and, day. And these were men who had taken their shirts off because it was a lovely yeah. day, yeah. And, and were not there for a fight. There were people being pushed off walls, yes. driven, driven in, some people took refuge running in through houses yes. to escape. Yeah. I mean, up, it was just a, generals, yeah. The police basically gave them a good kicking, yes. and that was what they'd intended to do the whole that, time. That seems that way. Astonishing. Do you remember it? Do you remember seeing this news report? I do at remember the time? seeing the news report, and I, and and it stuck in my consciousness for years that this was the turning point in the strike, and I went back. You did when I when I started to write my collection of poems about Sheffield. I went to look for Orgreave. Yep, yeah, because you will do that, Adrian. When you go back, you will often bring a poem back with you. So well, and let's hear it. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Absolutely. Looking for Orgreave. I went to look for Orgreave, searched the streets, walked through the new housing estates and the fresh-faced pub on the corner of the new road. For those fields where the police made charge after charge, deployed their snatch squads, and in a show of power, cantered their horses through the town. It wasn't there anymore. No trace ever happened, no neat cross swords over a clean white sign, demarcating it as a site of historical significance. Then I noticed, cable tied to a lamppost, what I thought was one of those requests for evidence after a recent car crash. Then I looked harder and read this. A serious crime happened here. Striking miners were beaten up, fitted up and locked up. The government has refused to investigate. It had a photo, the photo from that day. A woman, short, serious, dark hair, beads and jeans, and she's warding off a mounted baton blow. I stopped off at my favourite cafe number nine later that day to think about what I had seen. I told my story to a friend and showed him the photo of the sign. He picked up his phone and in quick, ten quick minutes, she was there, Leslie Bolton, the woman from the photo, drinking the coffee of her story with us. That raised truncheon still hovers over her, and after all these years she remains a sign, she is evidence. What was going through that policeman's head, she asks, when he tried to smash mine. It's not about me, though. It's about those men, those families. They still have no justice, and the truncheon still hovers. Really good, really good. I mean, that's such a powerful poem. And that's just a powerful line, that that idea the truncheon still hovers. It's like a kind of, um, if you want to look at it, it's like the British state has its weapon. Exactly. it's just waiting. That's that's what I was trying to say, that that because there's no justice, because nothing has been resolved about what happened in 1984-85, it's still up there. You know, even with what's going on today, you you sense that it's still hovering. I think um, it's something people have forgotten in recent yeah. years is how violent 
the British yeah. police were in those years. I mean, because like before Augury, before the miners, you had Brixton, That's Notting right. Hill. That's right. After the miners, you had, uh, well, Northern Ireland all the time. And so, in fact, some of the tactics the police used were yeah, borrowed yeah, from the yeah, early absolutely. tactics used in Northern Ireland. Absolutely. Then you have things like um, the back of the Beanfield, yeah. where the travellers were viciously assaulted oh, by um, yes, Wiltshire police yes. in 1985. I mean, not just assaulted, their caravans were just trashed it was a police riot and you never hear basically. about that no you don't hear a thing about it and then you've got the printer strike yep. the year after yep. mounted police when you that image of yours of the police cantering to show their power that that's is how what it i was. was told happened they just they just marked, they just rode through as if to say look we, we're in charge of you so uh, at that time you could go to almost any demonstration mm. about anything mm. and it was likely to turn into a battle and quite yeah. often you go there you'd find police with no numbers Another thing, so they couldn't That's be done. Really scary. Yeah, yeah, but you know that, and of course Leslie Bolton, the woman <laughs> with the jeans with the truncheon still hovering. Yeah. I mean that is such an iconic photograph. More probably maybe more iconic than Leslie would like. Well, and it was on. It was on, so it was the Orgreave Truth and Justice campaigns yeah. poster on on the lamppost with that photograph in the middle and yeah. and and she said to me when i met her in the cafe oh that bloody photograph i can't get away from it's it it's the kind of methodical brutality of it that's so striking isn't it it's like the cop's face is expressionless it's like there's another one yeah i'm going to take her head off and yeah yeah absolutely and well we we went back to Orgreave, <laughs> we did didn't we? we went back we to went Orgreave and, and, for Orgreave again. and we went there with leslie, leslie. Bolton. let's hear what she has to say fantastic let's do it okay so so i'm here with adrian we're at we're in the what used to be the village of Orgreave, it's not the most obvious site of a historic um, battle that changed, the, essentially changed the face of this country in the long term. We're standing next to a funeral directors on one side and next to that there's a print works. We're looking down the road towards Rotherham. There's a lot of traffic. There's new bills. The coke, the coke plant itself has disappeared. The big slag heap that used to be nearby has become a forest. And we're here with Leslie Bolton. And Leslie was um, the subject, the unfortunate, unwilling and un subject of the most iconic photograph of the miners' strike, which shows a mounted policeman looking as if he's about to take her head off. And that photograph was taken on that day in Orgreave. So, so Leslie, tell us, when you came, why did you come here that day? Well, I was just one woman in Sheffield Women Against Pit Closures. And I used to go with a friend, Audrey, a uh, bus driver, uh, to support miners on picket lines. And this was an obvious one to come to because it's so close to Sheffield. And um, it was also a lovely day. Was so it the first day you'd come to Orgreave? It's the first time I'd ever been to Orgreave, So when, yes. you, when you showed up, that you came in the morning, presumably? Yeah, you? we came about 9.30. And did you have any feel when you came that it was going to be different from other picket not at first, no. Why, what was Not different? Because it was uh, a beautiful day. We parked in what was then the Asda car park. Right. Asda's gone now. And um, there were a lot of miners about. Uh, we learnt later that the police had actually directed miners from all over the country to this place. Um, and so there were lots of miners about. Um, mostly... They, a lot of them had taken their shirts off. They were playing football and it was very quiet and easy going. Um, we walked down the road and across the bridge and, we, and there was a big field in front of the coking plant. And then 
in front of the coach, directly, more directly in front of the coach park, was a huge phalanx of police, about five or six deep. And on the rise, on the right of the field, was a line of police on horseback. But the field was quiet. It was basically just groups of blokes standing and sitting around in the sun. You know, they'd taken their t-shirts off and shoved them in the back of their trousers. It was, it was nothing much happening. There was a small group of younger miners on the road section only, um, in front of the, um, the police, doing a bit of ba barracking, you know, but nothing much. And then at some point, I can't remember the timings exactly, at some point the police lines opened up and um, there was a cavalry charge plus groups of police officers with round shields and truncheons and they basically just attacked everybody. And it was very bloody business. Uh, we were all forced to run up the hill back into the village, but we couldn't get oh, across yeah. the yes, we couldn't get across the bridge because the police had set up a cordon. Yeah. So we had to go down a steep bank onto the railway and up a steep bank the other side to get back up. And uh, the police charged right into the village, um, and order it. I'd got up to. Uh, just before the junction, All right. and there was a, an injured miner, um, and I was, he didn't look well, he looked as though he got uh, some chest problem, and I just stood up to attract the attention of a policeman who was in the road saying, wanting to say, could you get an ambulance, when the uh, mounted police officer appeared, you know, two of them, just cantering down the road and about to, uh, uh, just ready to hit anybody. This is what they were doing. Yeah. They, um, it felt very out of control. They were just, they had the long truncheons, you yeah. know, you and the they were just hitting anybody who happened to be close enough to I them. I think one of the striking things still about seeing that photograph, having seen it so many times, is one is the expressionless face of the mounted policeman. Mm. There's no anger on his face. He's like a machine. And then mm. there's you because you've got your hand raised up, but there's no urgency about it. It's almost as if you couldn't quite believe well, what was about to happen to you. Yes, I know. I, I, it, well, it happened very quickly. Yeah. And credit should go to John Harris yeah. for getting the pictures. There was yeah. another picture as well, just because I think he must have been using a motor drive, um, that shows the truncheon going right down by my arm. And somebody miraculously got hold of the back of my trousers and pulled me out of the way. Because um, you would have broken, something would have been broken if that, I think if that my had landed. Head would have been broken. Yeah, definitely. But I don't want to make too much of that, mm. because a lot of miners were badly beaten up, and um, I don't really like the focus being on me too much, no. because I was Fair just... Enough. And also that photograph has long since had anything to do with me. It's become something yes. of... It's strange, isn't it? Uh, yes, it's it's become something like else icon. now. It's an, it's been used a lot, yeah. and it's I I feel quite detached from it yeah. now in many yeah. ways. Was there any moment that day when you and your friends had spoke to each other and recognised that something unprecedented was happening? 
something in all the experience you'd had in other well, political events? Well, I went to fight a lot of other pickets so uh, during the strike, and there was never one that was quite like this. Um, it was the police were very violent, um, very aggressive. So we're quite the intertextual pair, aren't we, Adrian? Oh, we are. you're, you're writing a poem about Leslie Bolton, <laughs> and then we're interviewing Leslie Bolton at <laughs> the know. place where you wrote the poem about her, and she's talking about the photograph that was taken off her. I know, we're all... Meta-narratives me all over the place. <laughs> all over the place. What I love about what she says is it's not about her. She reiterates that over and over again. And, and she told us that what she was doing was trying to flag down a policeman because of an injured minor, and... And when you look at that photograph, you think, my God, how is that woman still alive? But as she says, it just missed her. Yeah. Um, it, it, was, it was great to be with her uh, and revisit that place and that poem. Um, but it, it's, it's leading us into this whole thing about Augury. So the historian and future Labour Party MP, yeah. Tristram Hunt, he described the, what happened at Augury was almost medieval in its choreography. At various stages, a siege, a battle, mm. a chase, a rout, mm. and finally, a brutal example of legalised state violence. Wow, that's ominous. It is. It's and true, though. It is true, but it's not, as we said before, it's not how it's presented at the time. I mean, no. it wasn't until years later no. that in 2009, Nicholas Jones, he, a former, then a former BBC journalist, he said he admitted that they'd got the footage wrong and they, they reversed it so it looked like um, miners were attacking police when yeah, yeah. it was the other way around. So in that what, clip. We, in that clip. It's clear. So he says, um, I got ensnared by the seeming inevitability of the Thatcherite storyline <laughs> that the miner workers had to be defeated in order to smash trade union militancy. He got ensnared. And that is such a powerful narrative. Mm -hmm. It's still at play now. In, in, in 2022... You hear it in the campaign of Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, this narrative about trade unions. It, it's all pervasive. No wonder he got ensnared. I think people get ensnared because they want to get ensnared. Yeah, it's, um, it's easy. Because it's in their career interest to get yes. ensnared. But, but also, I think ordinary people, it's just an easy way to think about things. But it, if, if you go into it the way we've gone into it and start talking to people who are involved, you realise it's a completely different situation. Well, Jones and those other journalists could have done that at the time, of well, course. Well, they could. He said, um, he said in 2009, he said the media may have been guilty of a collective failure of judgment. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, like, even though Augury was not a decisive episode in the strike overall, I mean, because the strike went it on went for on. months It afterwards. went on and on and on. I mean, some people said... It was like attrition. It was seen, though, as a victory for the government. Yeah. By the government, anyway. I mean, David yeah. Hart, the right-wing political activist and right. advisor to Ian McGregor of the National Coal Board mm -hmm. and advisor to Margaret Thatcher, yeah. had various um, Secret Service connections, a right. dubious character in general. Right. He later claimed in a 1993 interview that Augury was a set-up by us. He says the Coke... Us. Us, meaning... Yeah. Yeah. He says yes. that the Coke was of no interest whatsoever. We didn't need it. It was a battleground of our choosing on grounds of our choosing. Yeah. I don't think that Scargill believes that even today. The fact is that it was a setup and it worked brilliantly. Well, it worked brilliantly. Yeah. I think he's possibly overstating how it worked, given how long the strike went on for after, after it, that. But it, it, it was pivotal. I think it was demoralising. Um, I, th I think, you know, it, from being pickets 
in you know in 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 taking their shirts off because it was a sunny day, and and that sort of agreed. Uh, I don't know what you call it between the police and the pickets. That was just all completely destroyed. Yeah, I and, mean, and and uh, what? Because I don't want us to sound like sort of lefties that just you know blame the police or whatever. I think. This is about just ordinary people. That's what you get in the photographs of Orgreave. They're just ordinary blokes who are trying to protect a way of life. What, whatever you think of Arthur Scargill and all of that stuff, these were just ordinary families trying to protect something. And yeah. they, were, they, were, they were being just brutally... We should also trampled. note that some of those blokes were violent sometimes. Yes. I mean, yes. there was violence because there, there will be violence. violence in an industrial dispute there will be but the thing is um it's quite different in a way not only the aims that you've just stated mm. but in terms of the aims of the government as well yeah. when you have the state machinery coldly yes. planning police without numbers an episode in which they're just going to beat a lot of people up and i suppose yeah. um you know the Teacher measuring lesson. the effectiveness of what they did that day in orgreave sure they won that in commas that day yeah. the strike went on for months but months. on the other hand i mean some people say um the authors of the book marching to the fault line right yeah. they say yeah. that the pickets were intimidated by that day and that well, afterwards the police were kind of dominating on the picket lines it was almost as if all was saying this is what you'll get yes. if you persist with this exactly and maybe a message to other people as well saying if you come to show solidarity yeah for the union, unions get this involved is this is what get. you'll get yeah and the thing is um in terms of understanding that whole day, we have to think after what happened after yeah. that day and what was revealed after that day. I mean, 95 miners were put on various tri trials yes. um, for what happened that day. Um, some of them were charged with riot, yeah. something that had not been done, if I'm correct here, since Waterloo, uh, since Peterloo. Peterloo. So, you know, that's a serious offence, even at the time. And that's that bookend again. Bookend again, yes, exactly that. Basically, you could have got a life sentence in theory in wow. 1984 if you were wow. successfully charged with that. But the trials collapsed right. because the police case was found to be irregular, to say the least. <laughs> irregular. And basically, the prosecution um, themselves had to collapse their own case. Really? Because there were too many irregularities. There were documents that weren't there. Right. There were, and then there was evidence which came out years later that many of these documents had been... Um, they'd been stitched up. I mean, they right. were, the police had been told by their senior officers that day not to fill in their notebooks. Right, where do you hear that again? And yeah. so this was revealed, I think the BBC later talked about it many right. years later, maybe right. in compensation for their earlier coverage. Right. So basically, the people noticed the same phrases were appearing again and again. So these were officers who'd come from different parts of the country, yes. told to leave their notebooks empty. Yes. And so they were basically... Um, their case fell apart. The and word impunity comes to impunity mind. Impunity right? does come to mind. You can do what you like, we'll protect you. There was some compensation. In 1991, 39 miners who had been charged at Orgreave sued South Yorkshire police for unlawful arrest and malicious prosecution. Right. And there was a settlement of 425,000 payments and Good. no admission of liability. No admission. Crucial. So That's the problem. This, this, this whole thing is a gaping wound in... in, in the story of the north to it me. is and and if it, it seems it, it, they still can't talk about it it can't be you know it, it's not being addressed yeah i totally agree and and if it was um it seems like a kind of hot day many years ago yeah in 1984 that's irrelevant to yeah. anything since but 
it isn't seen that way in the north, is it? No, it's not. And, we, um, and, and weirdly, when we went with Leslie, it was a hot day. That's right, it was. <laughs> and we also spoke to Kate Flannery and Chris Peace from the yes. Orgreave Truth and Justice campaign. And we asked them why they're campaigning. Why they're still what does justice mean exactly. now exactly. when referring to Orgreave? And why have they been involved in it? We asked them these questions. This is yes. what they said. Yes, let's hear it. You know, it was coming out on the news, people getting in touch. What and did you feel when you saw when you saw what what you saw on the news? How did you feel when you saw that? Well, I just I just didn't believe it. I, I did not believe. I mean, you could see you could see what the police were doing. You know, the narrative didn't match what they were actually up to either. You know, I mean, they were implying that the miners were <laughs> causing the problems. You could see the police wading in and the police in arms in armed gear with, with horses and, and dogs. And, you know, we were experienced trade unionists. We'd been on other picket lines. We'd been on demonstrations. We'd seen the police in action. So we knew what was what was going on. But, you know, we were terrified and we were worried because we'd, we'd heard terrible stories about what had been going on in pit villages throughout the country. And also, personally, we'd been stopped travelling to other picket lines to show solidarity action. So we'd actually experienced firsthand the uh, police conduct and also the roadblocks that a lot of people aren't aware of, but we were stopped from travelling around the country. It, it was a real real pivotal moment in the strike because the, the strike was actually going really well. Um, you know, they were, people were, were, were getting through, they were trying to um, talk to people, great support from, um, you know, a lot of the country and internationally. Um, and so it was very well timed. And then you've got to remember that, you know, despite the sheer um, terrifying nature of being in that cornfield that day, there were 95 arrests. Yeah. And those charges were trumped up from, the, you know, originally arrested on minor public order charges, um, which were then uh, trumped up to charges of riot, uh, unlawful assembly. And at the time, you could go to prison for life. And... I mean, one of my memories as a kid is seeing uh, Leon Britton, every opportunity he came on the tally saying they're going to feel the full weight of the state. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, as Kate said, you know, people were terrified of going, not just because of the, you know, the violence that they could, could fear, but the fact that they could be potentially locked up for life um, and taken away from, from their families and loved ones. So... There was no, no evidence was offered against that. There was 48 days of a criminal trial at Sheffield Crown Court, 48 days of prosecution evidence. Um, and basically, as officer after officer came into court, gave evidence that was purely fantastical. And obviously, when this all stacks on top of each other, it was the prosecution um, who decided they had no case to answer. The fight back, you know, never. There was never an end to it. We never put our heads down. No. You know, it, it, it's been something that, you know, mm -hmm. it's, you know, done it. But we, I do we, think... It, on the podcast, uh, we managed to get a, a group called the KLF to, to allow us to use a song called Grim Up North. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely love the KLF. <laughs> brilliant. So, and it starts off just with them naming places in the north. You know, Manchester, Sheffield, Wakefield. Elkley, all in the north, they keep saying. And then suddenly it goes into Jerusalem, you know, yeah. Lakes, Jerusalem. And it, it feels, this is something that we've talked about a lot. 
a lot of bad things have happened in the north that are grim, but there's also this phenomenal resilience and and spirit uh, that comes out in culture, in politics, in what you're doing, uh, and it's so impressive. Um, well, you must come into contact with that a lot with people who have that sort of unbelievable resilience to keep keep because the people that were involved in this must be getting quite old now i mean i'm yes, 60 yes, I'm we all. <laughs> See you like. I, think, I think the other the other issue for me is um it's really not just about the north is it i mean the defeat was for the whole country exactly. if you get rid of the country if you get rid of the production of coal exactly. in a country that relies on coal and you import mass amounts of coal to replace it from countries where people are exploited and it's cheap labor and you make the workforce here redundant the whole country loses out it was the whole country that relied on yes. coal and there's also many working class people throughout Britain, not just this country, who have suffered terribly, who live, you know, Wales, the South, in Ireland, as a consequence of current Tory party policy, you know, and their lives uh, blighted because of all the things that Chris outlined earlier. Um, so it's not, you know, I think it's great to put a question mark after defeated. Well, that's exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're constantly being spun a complete yarn on a daily basis where people are being bombarded with lies. And how, how do you counteract that? Well, we want to try and counteract it by this whole truth coming out about not only what happened at Orgreave, but what happened in the minor strike and continue to um, have that narrative continually told. We want um, our children to learn about that narrative in history classes, not histories yes. of kings and queens and Churchill. There's, there's a lot of information, you know, out there. Um, and it, it, it's, you know, we, we want the information to be properly trawled through and pulled together. But what's clear to us and what we want, you know, well, what is our aim? You know, the, the, the vehicle through which we achieve our aim, you know, it, it could be a public inquiry. It could be another kind of inquiry. It could be a panel. Uh, not too uh, precious about how. But what we want accepting is, you know, all grief was planned. Yes. The whole strike was planned by the government and the police directed by the government to do what they did. That the whole narrative around it was agreed between the, the government and the police. That was agreed with well, documents that confirm that. And as Kate mentioned earlier, that narrative agreed between government and police was then advanced by the media. Um, and, you know, the very fact that the police, as touched on earlier, they fabricated evidence and they presented it with the aim of getting 95 people sent to prison for life. The aim of sending 95 people to prison for life. It, 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 that word impunity comes back to my mind. They are fighting, these two great women that we interviewed, they're and their campaign and everyone involved in it, all the miners, they're, they're fighting to get a voice heard that has been ignored. And I think that's, you know, we're talking about the defeated North, question mark. It was a defeat, but they're still fighting. Yeah, they're absolutely. not completely defeated. There's that resilience that we've talked about before. 
Yeah, I agree. And um, I think it's also really interesting when they use that expression about being bombarded with lies. lies. Because the, the kind of history we've been talking about is history. You always hear politicians going about, oh, people are trying to erase our history nowadays. When yeah. in fact, governments have very um, comprehensively done that yeah, yeah. Um, in this episode, haven't they? But the because th they refuse to have an inquiry, I know why they refuse. Because if this came out, clearly that... that you know, the whole thrust of this podcast, the way the state and the police acted, then, you know, hopefully it would begin to wake people up a bit more. Yeah, I agree. And, thing, and you know, we're, when we're talking about impunity of institutions in this country and impunity of police, this brings us directly from Orgreave to one of those terrible episodes yeah, of those years, which was the Hillsborough disaster oh of 15th of April, 1989. And there's a certain kind of carryover between Orgreave and Hillsborough, which we'll be discussing in a minute. There is. Um, um, but before we do that, let's just listen yeah. to um, the footage of what took place this at the Hillsborough Stadium that day. Yeah, let's, let's do it. But certainly the scene at the moment looks very, very serious. You may be able to hear the siren of the ambulance away to the left, and the trouble is the ambulance can't get through the crowd. And the ambulance is really inching forward, trying very, very hard to get through. But again, as I'm watching, there are police climbing up on the fence, pleading with people not to come forward. Some of the people at the back, understandably, through sheer fear, are trying to climb their way up into the upper tier once more. And the ambulance is still trying to get through. Well, that is just awful, isn't it? I hate listening to it. I hate, and I, and I hope it doesn't upset people that were, if, if anyone was involved that day. It's just horrible. And the, it, it, it's... It's the incomprehension of the commentator that upsets me. You know, he doesn't know, see what's going on right in front of him. And that, that, that is part of Hillsborough for me, is that people didn't see all the things that led up to it that created that disaster. And one of the things that they didn't see was the way the police acted. Yeah, yeah. At Orgreave. And that you, I think you can make a direct connection between the impunity with which the police, including South Yorkshire police, acted at Orgreave to what went on at Hillsborough. You really can. I mean, um, as, was, as has been proven since by the 2012 Hillsborough Independent Panel. 2012. Yeah, exactly. It took that long to exactly. get an independent panel. I mean... Not only did you have senior officers who'd been involved at Orgreave also involved yeah. in Hillsborough, yeah. but I mean, you also had these officers, you also had the same notebooks, the empty notebooks yeah. of Hillsborough. And the blaming as well. of ordinary working people yeah. for a disaster that was none of their own making. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and I'm a Sheffield Wednesday fan, and I find it chilling every time I go to Hillsborough to watch Sheffield Wednesday, to walk past Leppings Lane. And, and and I think there, there should be better memorials than there are already. But it is it's so upsetting. I tell you, I, it, it's, it's, I mean, I remember the stuff, you know, said in The Sun about oh, Liverpool fans despicable. urinating on policemen, despicable. pickpocketing. It was disgusting, disgusting. And, and that, again, is the impunity of the media. Yeah. That they got away with it at Orgreave. Uh, and the miners' strike, the 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 enemy within, and then and then they blame, f you know, people just going for it. That wonderful documentary called Anne with Maxine Peake, mm -hmm. um, it's really worth watching, and you you see it through the eyes of the mother of someone who died at Hillsborough, and it, they were just going for a day out. I have friends who were who were there that day, uh, uh, you know, 
who who ended up getting involved in helping and it's just ordinary people yeah. ordinary northern people to paraphrase that journalist Nicholas Jones what he said about Orgreave the media got ensnared yeah they, by the police narrative and the interesting thing is that Orgreave you had the police basically picking a battle yeah and fighting it on their yeah. terms at Hillsborough you had gross incompetence yeah and the a, police, a, police couldn't even admit to that no and a constant rearguard action since then by the police and, and and you know the verdict was unlawful killing but no one has been held responsible for it. no i mean some of the things come out of the um the hillsborough panel i mean they argue that the this is another perhaps a connection with orgreave is yeah. that the um they they say that the um police were locked into a kind of crowd control um a safety mind not safety mindset wow. a prevention of hooliganism it, and public disorder hooliganism. mindset and so, therefore, they weren't interested in the safety implications. No, exactly. Of and there had been. Place. I mean, I went to football matches then. There was hooliganism. Crowds were, you know, troublesome and dangerous at times. But in general, and and uh, yeah, they were caught in a mindset where they thought they were seeing one thing, and what they were seeing was a tragedy. Mm -hmm. A policing and stewarding mindset, predominantly concerned with crowd disorder. Yeah, you could say the same about Orgreave, yeah. way, couldn't you? Yeah. And uh, but the but the pathetic thing is, and it's something that still rankles in the way so many things are done in this country, is that even when they'd made a mistake, they couldn't admit it. No. So not only would they not admit it, they have to blame the victims exactly. for their incompetence. Exactly. Just so utterly disgraceful in terms really. of leadership of this country i think that's one of the most despicable elements in the way the north has been treated is never apologized never explained you know it, it, it incenses me it makes me feel terribly upset yeah because because these are good people these are people that built the country yep and yet you know i mean you have a situation which the Hillsborough Independent Panel, after years of campaigning by bereaved families to have that panel, found that 116 statements have been amended to remove or alter comments unfavourable to South Yorkshire police. Yet even in 2015, the Independent Police Complaints Commission dossier, they found doubts about the ethical standards of officers at the highest ranks of South Yorkshire police oh, at that time, yeah. but they still refused to launch a full investigation. Into Orgreave, I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah really. So, yeah, oh they, gosh, I thought you were talking so, about Hillsborough. No, no, they wouldn't. They so they so because after the after the Hillsborough panel, um, right. campaigners asking for an investigation to what happened at Orgreave tried to argue for a similar I'm kind not, of investigation. I'm not going to read it to you now, but I've got a poem that connects the two. Um, Hillsborough, you know, can't we march this back? I I, I wrote from Hillsborough to Orgreave, where it all started. Right, well, the two are linked, aren't they? Yeah. Yet the IPCC um, refused to, to um, follow, take it up any further, even though they said, they noted that no warning had been given before police charges at Orgreave, <sighs> that the throwing of missiles had taken place after the police charges. Yeah. Um, they commented, they accepted that BBC News had reversed the coverage of what happened that day. And Needs yet, an inquiry. no inquiry. Kath and Chris. So what are you the, left with? Kath and Chris were so right and they said that they'd had a huge amount of support from the Hillsborough campaign that they, and they'd learnt a lot from the Hillsborough campaign. Yeah. Um, all part of their elbows. And the thing is we're still living with the consequences of this aren't we? It's, all this. Well, I mean in that's policing why it's so important. I think that's why this is all so important and yeah. that's why that question mark at the end is so important yeah. because it, it may have been a defeat but the victory will be when there's justice and when we learn 
in this country when we learn that you can't treat people like that with impunity. And boy, what did they, I mean, look at the consequences, you know, the total destruction of an industry. And that takes me back to the question we asked Harry, whether he thought that the miners' strike was a defeat for the North. You've got to admit that it is, um, in the sense, on, a, on one sense, the idea was that we need to defeat the NUM because if we can't defeat the NUM, then we can't defeat the rest of the trade union movement. And if yeah. we can't defeat the trade union movement, then we cannot asset strip, deregulate and privatise the country. Yeah. Um, Thatcher was quite prepared to destroy an entire industry to get to the NUM, and she did. So in the sense that that entire industry was destroyed uh, and is now completely vanished, from history, um, and quarter of a million men lost their jobs, and umpteen villages that relied on the economic sustenance provided by that employer, in that sense, it absolutely was a crushing defeat. But, on the other hand, it's arguable, and I don't think it's in the realms of speculation, that with every passing day, that defeat recedes a little bit, and the moral victory becomes ever more apparent. And I think we're very close to the point now where you look at the cost of living crisis, you look at the RMT, you look at the teachers, the barristers, the nurses, the care work, you look at the whole reams of people coming out on strike. And Sherwood's timing has been brilliant because yeah. it really allowed a lot of people to, to, to join the dots between then and now and why it's happening. So, yeah, it was certainly a defeat, but, with you know, touch wood, God willing, it may not be a, def a defeat that endures forever. 174 deep coal mines in the UK in 1984 when the wow. strike began. Yeah. 15 left 10 years later in 1994 wow. when the industry was privatised. The last mine, Kenningley, North Yorkshire, closed in 2015. Yeah, and I remember Hatfield closing just around that time as well. So that's not just a destruction of an industry, it's a destruction of the industries related to coal, coal and mining. Ancillary industries, yeah. And it's the eradication of the communities that were... Absolutely. It, revolved around coal mining it's a culture it was a way of life uh, you know I, I i lived in a mining village for a while and then in the late well mid to late 90s i worked for doncaster council for voluntary service um trying to help some of those mining towns armthorpe rosington asken mm -hmm. hatfield i worked for a thing called the heart of stainforth trust hatfield and stainforth are next door to each other and and it and, and the worst place, I think, not the worst, the most painful place was Edlington. Uh, I, I tried to help people set up a community organisation there. Mm -hmm. And and Edlington had been a thriving town, like Maltby. They, you know, they had greengrocers, they had shoe shops, they had clothes shops, they had everything they needed. They had the miners' welfare. They were thriving towns. And that, I watched Edlington just fall apart. Mm-hmm. And, and it became terrible social deprivation, terrible problems with drugs, because there was no work. Because And, and also, much worse than that, they were just abandoned. Yeah, yeah. And so all, and, and I remember there was this rhetoric about regeneration. Mm -hmm. but, but it's very hard to regenerate something that's dead. That's a picture you hear again and again from all the old pit areas, don't you? I mean, like yeah. Grimethorpe Colliery, for example, after it was closed in 1992, by 1994, it was called the poorest village in England. Yeah. 50% um, unemployment, 50% yeah. unemployment, 30% crime increase. I mean, 
you hear of new jobs being created, but I mean, most of them seem to have been sort of gig economy, Amazon type jobs, temporary yeah, call jobs. Call centers, lots of call centers. Zero hours contract type right. jobs. In other words, the kind of jobs that basically people are expected to do everywhere. Yeah. But they were all, you know, the miners. But they don't give you the type of, too. I mean, you know, in the in episode two, we talked about Orwell's description of a miner. I, I met, you know, lots of miners and their families. They have a particular dignity about mm-hmm. them. I don't mean that to sound patronising, but they just, it was a proper culture uh, and, and it was so impressive. Uh, and that was just thrown on the scrap heap. You're not the only one who made that observation. I'm going to read you a quote now, see if you can guess who said it. Oh, okay. Okay. Those mining communities had good working class values and a sense of family values. Yeah. Many of these communities were completely devastated with people out of work, turning to drugs, and no real man's work because all the jobs had gone. Yeah. There's no doubt that this led to a breakdown in these communities. The scale of the closures went too far. The damage done to these communities was enormous as a result of the strike. Who do you think said that? And I said, I guess, possibly Michael Heseltine? Norman Tebbit. Oh, my God. Norman Tebbit, Trade wow. and Industry Secretary under Thatcher. <laughs> As hard line as you could hard get. Hard line as you could get. Even he, even I, he says that. So it's true, and you know, I defy some of those people to live in those communities and experience what people went through and and not despair. But th- yes, I agree. I agree. But when you look at what Tebbit's saying, this is the government that was calling these people the enemy within. The enemy in fact, within. The enemy within. Get on your bike and get a job. The enemy within Give quote was first used by Thatcher a few weeks after Orgreave. Really. In reference to Orgreave. Really. So they at that time, it, when what Tebbit says this now, it just makes it clearer that it was a political decision, yes, wasn't it? A political it decision related to the long-term reconfiguration of the UK economy. Yes. It all could have been done differently with a different kind As of government and different society. makes absolutely clear. Totally. But we have put this episode, The Defeated North, with a question mark, haven't exactly. we? Exactly. Why have we done that? <clears throat> because, as I, as I said a bit earlier, I think it, it's we're in this position where it feels like a defeat. Certainly, Orgreave felt like a defeat and the miners' strike and all of these things. But if... If these things are talked about, if this history is told, if the narrative becomes more uh, prevalent in the national consciousness, if the North can speak up for itself again, then there is the possibility of changing all these things, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there's an interesting book coming out next year by the historian um, Robert Gildier. Mm -hmm. He's a historian who's specialised in the French resistance. And he's uh, he's doing the first oral history of the miners' strike. I'd be really interested to see that because I was looking at what he was saying about it, and he he talks about that episode as being the unmaking of the working class, part of the unmaking of the working class. But he also That's well said. He also says that it was not just a defeat. He says that you know many of the people involved in in the miners' strike went on to become campaigners, yeah. MPs, social workers, teachers, yes. counselors. They went to university. Yes. They reinvented themselves. They became yes. environmentalists. The Orgreave Truth and Justice campaign is still campaigning. Yeah. Think of Peterloo. Peterloo, insofar as it was a battle, yeah. was clearly a defeat, a yeah. massacre. Yeah. Yet it did have longer-term positive repercussions. I mean, it became the basis for the 1832 Reform Act, which gave most of the gave into most of the demands that people had wanted right. in 1819. Right. It was cited regularly by the Chartists. Yeah. They used to kind of. Um, read out the names of the martyrs each year. So sometimes you lose, but at least you fought. You fought, 
and and you have a narrative of resistance that then continues and i think that's what's important that's why i wrote that poem i think that's what's important about the podcast it's it's telling the story of the north in a way that hopefully gives people a sense of we you know we we can carry on with this struggle absolutely because the way that strike is remembered is not like that is i was interested when you know we've got the um, the rmt on strike yeah doing its rolling strikes yeah. And I saw the episode with Kay Burley from Sky News interviewing me, and she was hilarious because she kind of goes, it's not going to be like the miners' strike, is it? And he points to about two or three pickets standing behind him. Perfect comic, comic timing. But the thing is, that's yeah, he says, still... Does it look like the miners' strike? The idea is the miners' strike well, is associated I mean. with job violence or and, yeah, you know, destructive that, that chaos. common narrative that yeah. needs to be changed. Yeah. And you, you, you change it by talking about it, by writing about it, by singing about it. Or making films about it. I mean, like, like in Pride. Pride. And Pride is a wonderful... One of the many great things about Pride, it's basically a kind of... Um, him to solidarity. Exactly. And it shows a, how yeah. these solidarity networks sprout out. The yeah. wonderful scene when the miners come and That's, take part in the Pride cry. March. It's it wonderful, makes me isn't cry. it? And that wasn't the North, it was Wales. But no. it, you know, the North was allied with, with the Welsh coalfields and they had the same values, yep. the same mentality. And and the one of the women in that that film goes on to become an MP. Yeah, that's right. And um, she did. It's she did. a proving ground, and that's what we need again. We need we need the North to become a proving ground yeah. for for leadership that defends ordinary people. Yeah, remember that line in Sherwood from the um, mentally disturbed murderer. He says, oh. "We're not even Northerners." <laughs> in, in other words, Nottinghamshire didn't fight, but no. the North did, even though it lost. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah, did it lose? It it, it lost a lot, but as you just said, we didn't lose our dignity. You know those. The, the, I remember the march back, and I went. I think thirty years later to a thing called the Long March Back. Mm -hmm. We went to Hatfield Colliery, and we went in the miners' welfare. And Arthur Scargill's wife Anne Scargill was there, and they gave speeches. And you just got that again, that wonderful sense of humour. They made me laugh. There's there's a bollard that's now a monument. And in the strike, right in the heart, in the middle of winter, they made a snowman over it. And the police kept telling them to get rid of the snowman, and they wouldn't. And they said, if you don't get rid of that snowman, we're going to drive a policeman <laughs> straight over it. And they went, OK, be our guest, and they ruined the policeman. It wrote the policeman off. Those kind of stories and that kind of uh, courage, uh, you know, in adversity. Yeah. And, and, and you know, they, they understood what was happening to them. But but they didn't let it defeat them. I right right. I mean, I remember watching the miners um, after the strike marching past the um, Greater London Council building in, yeah, um, yeah, London. in London, and I remember thinking they didn't look like people who'd lost. No, no. I mean, but it was a defeat. Yes. Everyone knew it. They knew yes. it. Yes. And yet, they had fought because sometimes history tells it doesn't give you any choice. No. You have to fight. No. So on that note, I think we'll we shall end this episode. But yeah. please. Come and listen to the next episode because if you thought the North was grim, <laughs> it's getting a lot grimmer when we look next at the legacy time. of Get Carter Absolutely. and the birth of Northern Noir. Northern Noir, yes. And also, you know, um, wherever you get your podcast from, if you can give us a few stars, even maybe five, uh, write a review. You can contact us at um, grimupnorththepodcast uh, at gmail.com. 
any feedback you've got i mean and then the feedback you've already given us is lovely it's been really great to hear from people it has and 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 you know we'd love to hear what your views about the strike about orgreave about everything you've heard and and how it affects you not not just you know intellectually but emotionally because because that's the heart of the north that's what the grim up north podcast about it's about getting to those deep roots of the north it I is think. let's bow out with billy bragg yeah let's with a message there's yeah. one message we'd like everyone to take yeah. <laughs> out of this podcast especially in the times we're now living in absolutely it's this one yeah You are listening to Grim Up North, a podcast about the North from the North.